2: and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering.
0: How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false?
1: Fortress on a Hill aims to change that.
0: When something And then when something profound, when something profound happens, like this, which I think this is pretty profound, when something profound happens, like the assassination of a fucking sovereign nation's top-ranking general and maybe second or third-ranking, like, human being in government, like, we don't even know how serious it is because so many other serious travesties occur every goddamn day that you just get lost in it, and you're like, well, is this really important or are we just making a mountain out of a molehill? Yeah. Now I happen to think this is incredibly important, but it's just, I don't know, man. The numbness almost makes you want to be a conspiracy theorist. It almost (laughs) makes you want to believe, you know, and I'm not more of an Occam's razor guy, as I've said a million times, but of course, every time I say that, I then, you know, put forward some sort of conspiracy theory but <laughs> it it almost makes you think that purposely like the powers that be like the orwellian 1984 government that we have is like trying to like make us numb a bit at a time so that when they eventually are like well now we've just got to kill the jews we'll be like well i guess we do you know what i mean i think that's how it works you know i don't know maybe i'm wrong
1: people get beat down so much that they feel like that when something else bad happens, it's just kind of like, oh, this is just one more thing to add onto the pile, right? Oh, I don't yeah. know. I feel like yeah. a lot, there's a lot bigger perspective. Like I think a lot of people are getting it and they're start, They're like, whoa, this is really messed up. Um, it's really annoying to keep hearing like the right-wing media and like the basically state TV that is Fox News. Like just constantly say, oh, he was a terrorist and blah blah blah, as if that like somehow excuses the fact that like we killed him. And there's like no context, like no historical context, no context of like the structure of um the Iranian military and like how important the the IRGC is to you know the country and to the military structure. You know, and it's there's just a lot of ignorance being thrown around and that also really frustrates me because when you try to talk to people about it, they just, you know, the people that are in support of it, just go back to the, Oh, he was a terrorist stuff. And I'm like, no.
0: But it's it's a really an interesting word, that word terrorist, you know, I mean, it's such a valuable, I, I mean, I used to have this teacher at West Point who used to say that language I mean, obviously, he read early Chomsky, but he would say, like, language is the most powerful weapon in the arsenal of human affairs. And at first, I remember thinking, nah, I'm pretty sure it's a hydrogen bomb, you know. (laughs) Um, But, but like, over the years, you know, I was 19 and stupid. But now I'm like, maybe it is, though, because you can't build a hydrogen bomb unless you've cowed the people through absurdist, euphemistic – powerful language for decades if not centuries right like the people should have stood up and said no we can't build a hydrogen bomb because if we build it that gives us the capacity to destroy humankind and therefore it's in some ways a suicide pact and of course the our opponents are gonna then build one so like as soon as the government started trying to build a hydrogen bomb the people should have been like no but that didn't happen because the people had been cowed for decades and decades, really centuries, through the language of fear, right, and, and the language of just like um, aggression towards others and the sense of defensiveness and the sense of like both racial, ethnic, and religious difference. And I mean, I, I just, I've been getting really philosophical in, in my old age, and I'm starting to write articles that... Trying to lean in that direction because I'm increasingly persuaded that that's real. Because, like terrorists. okay, what what's terrorism like? Okay, was was Soleimani was the was the Quds force Kuds force, uh, terroristic? Well, by some measures, I mean I think there is evidence that they promoted uh, groups that conducted terrorism, may have even conducted some of their own, maybe even some false flag stuff, but. The assassination via drone of like another country's major leader when there's been no war declared and also a bunch of other people in the convoy who no one gives a fuck about right no one gives a fuck about the other people who died um that's terrorism by definition right it's it's meant to sow terror right in the enemy which the word enemy is all we can go down this road forever right it's like it's like when my son asked me why you know and i lose my fucking mind you know, he'll be like, Dad, Dad, were you in the army? Yes. Why? Well, I, you know, I wanted to travel, and I wanted to serve my country. Why? Um, Because, uh, you know, I, th- I thought that there were bad guys in the world. Why are there bad guys? Well, actually, there's... Well, bad's a funny word. You know what I mean? And he's three, and he doesn't get any of this. But, like, I'm going down a rabbit hole until at the end. I'm like, just, you know, I steal this from Louis C.K. Where I'm like, shut the fuck up and eat your fries. You know, like, which basically Louis does a similar bit on this. But, like... We could take the word terrorism and then, like, unpack it until we're, like, figuring out what the word is is, you know? Like, it just shows how deep this goes. So, uh, Henry, I mean, I I know you started recording, so, I mean, we should probably just include what we've been talking about,
2: right? We can. There's no, no problem. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I don't even – I mean because this is a bonus episode, um, I don't even know that it needs to have like the normal structure. Um, I mean this is just us talking about what happened, which of course, listeners, is, in case anybody missed it, was the Trump administration's decision to uh, assassinate the uh, – Uh, drone uh, missile attack, the head of the uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps, Commander Major General uh, Qasem Soleimani, and uh, also a bunch of other guys, including like the assistant commander of the uh, Iraqi Popular Mobilization Forces, which is the conglomerate of Shia militias that, oh, by the way, helped us, deeply helped us, specifically the Iraqi government that we back, fight ISIS. In fact, since the Iraqi army collapsed in Mosul, uh, that's why the pmfs right were formed but nevertheless we assassinated without a declaration of war without congressional sanction without even congressional notification it seems at least for the gang of eight who you normally get um, Notified and we could break that down in a minute You know, we, we, we conducted an act of war, act of war this is tantamount to war And so I think what we're going to do today is Just break that down and take everybody's thoughts on it and then Talk about why it's why it's significant, what it portends. But I, I think you're you're right, Kagan. Is uh, the backstory that's just totally missing? Because what you have is a left and a right mainstream media and political establishment that disagrees profoundly on whether this was a strategic move, right? Whether this was a good move, and they break down almost completely on partisan lines, with the exception of like Rand Paul, right? I mean, the Republicans completely back Trump, Democrats completely back the not Trump decision or the opposite of Trump's decision, but they all agree on one thing, which is that Iran is responsible for all this. Iran's a malign actor and uh, the general, right, the head of the IRGC was, was basically a terrorist. I mean, every Democrat feels the need to say, look, I mean, Iran's bad and this guy was a bad dude with a lot of blood on his hands. And like, nobody's saying, well, maybe he existed in the capacity that he did and maybe the irgc was formed in with the charter it has based on a very very specific and complex and defensive i think the key word here is defensive defensive iranian strategy in the aftermath of the 1980 to 88 iran iraq war and of course it goes deeper than that and and we'll we'll jump in but I don't know what do you think it was just should we just go around the horn i mean to the extent everyone is you know prepared or or thinking about it and say like start with like what happened and what stood out about it and then maybe we'll go back around and talk about some of the backstory that we think is missing well you guys start because i'll go left
1: well i wanted to you started off on a really cool perspective which is like let's try and look at this objectively like where we're not the United States and we're not, you know, these countries dealing with this stuff. Um, like, let's just look at this as an, ab- an, like an object, uh, something that happened, right? So, I, I, t- I tend to look at Iran's uh, decisions to make these moves, um, like, like you were saying about the way the Quds force works. We can, we can look at that as Iran's way of doing force projection. Right, because they don't have the incredible infrastructure of you know our country or other countries that are able to go out and use pre- uh, conventional military forces. So what do they have to do? They have to use asymmetric warfare. They have to use these you know uh, militias, these Shia militias that are you know in conjunction with their ideology. So you know if we were looking at it from that perspective, I think that would give people a little more context into what's actually going on instead of just, you know, blanketing this guy with the, oh, they're terrorists and blah, blah, blah. If we looked at it from the perspective of this is a country that doesn't have a lot of money. I mean, they're going through a really bad economic crisis thanks to our sanctions. And so they have to find a way to like put their message and project their strength like any country does. Right. So I just think it's really unfortunate that we don't try to um we don't try to look at it from that perspective.
2: I keep wondering how far American forces were from the actual drone site. Was it, you know, was it so close that, you know, shrapnel hit hit them because um Danny both of us have been to the the Baghdad airport, you know, the green zone and such that's supposed to be an an allied area. So the idea that the Iraqis have anything left to hold them over onto our side, if they ever did, it's all gone. And oddly enough, this morning, the uh, Iraqi parliament passed a bill asking all of our forces to get out of their country and President Mahdi is supposed to sign it.
1: And this is like the third yeah. time they've done
2: that, right? <laughs> well, yeah, they've done it a few few other times, and then we're not going to respect it, obviously. But it it really it really says something about where we've arrived at after occupying that area for so long. And yet we're still yeah, willing does. to it, put a gun to the head to the head in their in their capital. And I'm I'm being facetious, but I think you get my point.
0: It is uh illustrative of how much matters in Iraq have gotten out of our control. You know, how much, despite the presence of our forces, despite the bullying diplomatically that we continue to do, you know, Biop used to be an American city. Biop being Baghdad international airport, that's what we used to call it. Of course, you know that, you guys. But it used to be an American city, right? It was probably bigger than any city in Vermont, literally, when, when it was at full strength, right? Or close to it um the fact that you know iran had the wherewithal to have any presence there that he could that the general could fly in and that we could then strike him via a missile attack i mean i'm sure we still have troops at buy up I, I, i've not kept up with the force structure or the order of battle of american troops in iraq for some time now but I have to believe we have troops in and around biop and so it is fascinating that like basically right on or right outside the airport in a convoy we're like blowing this dude up and it's like wow this is so demonstrative of like how out of control the whole situation has gotten and then you say like well how close are american troops i'm wondering how close the drone operator was like Has it been put out? Was he in Nevada or was he somewhere else in Iraq or was he at another black site somewhere else? Like, I mean, I don't know if this is how it went down, but it may very well have. It would be really instructive if some 20 year old in goddamn Las Vegas popped the second or third most powerful head of, you know, governmental person in a sovereign nation like this is like war gone amok like this is this is drone and ai warfare sort of like just gone off the rails what, i mean who could have foreseen this it, the whole thing is insane just from a just from a structural point of view of like what actually happened absent all context or all consequences
2: and why didn't Bush and Obama do it. That's something I've seen numerous articles mention or infer about a little bit that they. So I want to say Dick Cheney had wanted to, and either Bush told him no, or the people pushing back on that a little bit said no. It's too disruptive to the region. Of course, Obama, being a little a little more conservative than that, probably said no right at the offset, but. Why was it that, that neither of them found any reason to do this? And, and like you've mentioned, Danny, we're, we're talking about the the rock star of the of the Iranian military. You know, someone who's not just a military officer, but a political presence in Iran, a very big presence. They were even in their stupidity as far as warmongers go, they both said no. And not that I mean. Trump's like a you know a give, if you give a mouse a cookie you know he he wants to push the button and and kill the terrorists and do his uh, do his circle jerk with his cronies but why did why did it have to why did they say no and yeah. he said yes
0: I think that it was a risk reward calculus. I mean, I think for all their flaws, Obama's many and Bush's uncountable uh, flaws, I, I think that they, and specifically most of the people around them, or at least elements of the people around them, were able to give their advice to the presidents and say, look, this is a bad guy. This is a, a guy who is, in our opinion, a uh, c- counter to American interests in the region, dot, 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 but... You know, we stand to lose more in uh, a the resultant instability of the region, b the inevitable because pride demands it, the inevitable retaliation against soft American targets, and then th- and then c the increased likelihood of another war with Iran when we're already just absolutely trapped especially back then in quagmires in Iraq and Afghanistan. So I just think cooler heads prevailed. Like, I don't think it's because they felt any sympathy for the Iranian position or, oh, or understood no, no. the context of our aggressive behavior since 1941 or definitely 53. I just think they did a risk-reward calculus and saved us the trouble. But yeah, what I, what I fear is that in, in Trump land, you know, he has the perfect – he's like the perfect storm. Like his unsteady temperament combined with his ignorance, combined with his laziness and his opportunism uh, electorally, I think all of those combine to make him more malleable to the you know hawks within his administration to, to make this happen. I mean think about it this way. You said, why didn't Bush kill him? Okay. If anyone was going to kill him, it ought to have been Bush around 2007 and 2008. Now, why? Because allegedly, and and by the way, this isn't as open shut of a case as many people make it. Um, I have no doubt that Iran played a role in backing the militias and their EFP, um, which were advanced IEDs, right? Their EFP, you know, Bonanza that went on killing... Uh, hundreds of American troops uh, mostly in East Baghdad and other Shia areas between 2006 and 2008 or nine. but it's not an open shot case I think some, to some extent Iranian influence has been uh, exaggerated but nevertheless let's assume it wasn't at the moment when Iran's support for the the Shia militias that were killing, uh, if not the preponderance for a while, at least a large minority of the American deaths in Iraq. I mean, one would think after 603, I think that's the count, uh, Americans were killed by the by those Shia militias, specifically those bombs. Wouldn't that have been the moment to kill him? Like, why now? That's one of the things that bothers me. Why now? Yeah. Like, because he was maybe about to plan some attacks on a few diplomats? And a few rocket attacks on some bases. And that's some pretty minor shit compared to when we were in fucking Iraq and literally had nightmares about EFPs every day and every daydream as we left the gate, wondering if we were coming home with our life or our limbs. I mean, that ought to have been the moment. And here's the other thing. We just talked about the report. Right, the, the, the film, the report all about the lies associated with the CIA torture program. Well, because I'm a masochist, I rewatched Official Secrets with Keira Knightley and also <laughs> um, Shock and Awe um, with uh, James Marsden about the – both of which were about the profound lies that got us into the Iraq war in the first place. So my question is this. like, Why would we ever take the government's word for it? on intelligence like why would we like so in other words trump comes out and says we had to do this because he was about he was planning and about to uh execute these attacks on american basis but he provides no evidence right and why does he provide no evidence well you know intel right because oh it's classified official secrets right secrecy american security all right that may have played in a pre-iraq war lie us into war invasion i mean it still shouldn't have because we've been lied to since like you know 1776 but theoretically it should have, maybe that would have applied before 2003, but in a post 2003 world, I'm like, fuck secrecy. The risk reward there is there's more risk associated. If you're lying, than there is risk. If you tell us something classified. So my thing for the rest of my life, and I will be such a cynic forever. I'll be like a curmudgeon, you know, in my nursing home telling all the other (laughs) old people that are trying to play Bashi ball that they should, you know, never trust their government, but uh, you shouldn't, I'm like, give me the evidence. Show me. Tell me what he was doing. Publicize it. It's a this. Uh, the public deserves to know when you commit an act of war, when you de facto place us in a state of war, when you create a fait accompli where now Iran is going to have to retaliate. Like, You owe it to the family of the people that are going to die, and mark my words, going to die in at least the singular, if not multiple, Iranian retaliations. So it's like I don't buy the evidence, show it to me, publicize it, declassify it. Because why in the world should I trust you in a world where I've seen those three movies in the same fucking two week period? I feel like I'm owed some evidence, no?
1: Definitely, definitely. And I just, it just makes me sad. Like I think about like even like st- setting aside America's perspective or the, you know, the narrative that we're being fed. Let's just look at things from Iran's perspective. There, there's there been two invasions in two countries. They're direct neighbors, left and right of them. And we have built multiple bases and we have Fifth Fleet headquarters in Bahrain, which is just across the Gulf. You know, we have... We have multiple uh ships there every single day. We have like and beyond the fact like we're doing these economic sanctions which have devalued the real like uh I don't know 75% or something. Well it's gotten a little bit better lately, but it's still not great. It's pretty bad. And like we're putting this country in a in a position where even the people who are against you know what like say Lamani like so, say like Soleimani had a lot of support within the elite, you know, um, the Iranian elite and the higher ups. But like, there was a lot of people that weren't like regular Iranian people that weren't happy with what they were doing, and well, and just with the, with the government's doing in general. But if we attack them, like, well, if we attack them more, you know, we're only going to solidify resistance against anything that we try to do, and it just, I, it just boggles my mind that. You know, I think for what you said about Obama, like also Obama was trying to build this Iran nuclear deal. So he knew that if he if he killed Soleimani, like it would be terrible and that would totally tank the deal. So he probably also thought, well, that's not going to be good strategically for him. <sighs> but yeah, I don't get it. What you said, Danny, it's like, why now? Like what? There's nothing there's nothing that has been presented to us publicly about Uh, any, like, impending U.S. attack or impending, like, serious damaging thing for us to have to go after somebody this high up. And I just, I don't see how, um, by using force, there's any, like, good way that we can, that, like, anybody can come out ahead. And Henry and I were talking about this before you got on. We were talking about how, like, um, (laughs) how we, we all know, you know, when, when situations are tense, you know, people act stupidly. And even, you know, when I was in back in like the 2010 to 2011, 12, 13, like we had so many close calls with Iran just because people got freaked out about them being close to them or, you know, ships being in the area or whatever, and people freak out and, You know, they they can, people can make mistakes. So, like, even now, I bet things are super heightened. I bet everybody's on, like, the edge of their seat and pins and needles. And it just takes one person to make a stupid decision, like, one officer of the watch to, like, mistake, you know, some missile or uh, some radar signature for, like, a missile. And then, you know, they end up making the decision to shoot back. Like, (laughs) we know, you know, that kind of shit happens all the time.
0: But yeah, you know, you guys might have seen my uh, article for Truthig that I pumped out at like seven in the morning when this happened because my phone was flooded with requests. But I talked about like how many wars in history have been started by assassinations or individual insults against a a singular member of someone's country you know like the war of jenkins ear which was like a two-year naval war between england and spain because allegedly like a spanish officer had like amputated the ear of like a british merchant seaman like imagine how many people died in that war over a fucking piece of ear like and then like charles gordon dies in khartoum in the sudan you know and he wasn't even in the british army anymore and the british go to war with Sudan and the Mahdi from like 1886 to 1898 deaths of tens of thousands you know and then of course World War One, right like the <laughs> yeah. assassination of a fucking Austrian archduke by a non-state actor yeah. right this is I mean in some ways this is worse because this is like like they said Serbia backed the Serbian nationalist who killed um, Ferdinand but
1: totally even if they didn't. did
0: <laughs> Like and, and even if they did, like let's just like assume they totally backed him and they gave him the gun, right, and the bullets. It, it, it's like that's not even as severe and as uh, overt as what we did, which is like uh, one state actor bombed another state personnel. Like it's incredible. Like these sorts of things, like you said, now the world's on a hair trigger. And the other thing you said that's so valuable is this is the most counter, like, assume everything they say about fucking Soleimani is correct, right? Assume everything they say about him, sorry, he's the blood most bloodthirsty terrorist in the world, right? That's how they're there. He's just as bad as Baghdadi, which is, of course, fucking ludicrous. But that's what they say, right? Shim, that's true. This is still the most unstrategic or astrategic move of all time. Because what was the theory? What was the theory of sanctions and maximum pressure, right? Is that what they call it or whatever that the policy is? The theory has always been, and it's been a flawed theory, that if you squeeze the regime, right, enough, if you contain them, which just means surround militarily, and if you cripple them with sanctions, which of course counterproductively hurts the people most, right? And we've learned throughout history that Sanctions tend to actually solidify the people with their government because they resent that their starvation because they don't blame their own government. Maybe they should, but they don't blame their own government for the sanctions. They blame the outside entity vis-a-vis the United States that's sanctioning them. But nevertheless, the theory was if you starve them and you surround them militarily, the youth, the moderates, will rise up and they will overthrow the Ayatollahs because most Iranians hate the regime. Now, there is some truth in the fact that the youth in particular of Iran is far more progressive and far more pro-Western than, than, than the youth in many other Arab countries. There's truth in that. In fact, the youth in Iran have a lot more in common with Americans than the youth in Saudi Arabia, ironically. But by doing this, <laughs> by, by this egregious act of aggression, we have accomplished for the regime that with which they have been obsessed with doing and attempting to do since 1979 which is to solidify the entire population for all its heterogeneousness under their as loyal to them this is what that's going to accomplish the people when you attack another country i mean look at it look at look at september 11th look at pearl harbor when you attack in another country you, everyone rallies around the flag stupidest thing japan could have done was attack pearl harbor why why because less than a year before pearl harbor when roosevelt wanted to uh put in place a peacetime draft in order to prepare for the potential of impending war that passed congress by one vote because literally half of americans were isolationist or at least opposed to entering the european and pacific wars but the minute they attack us at pearl harbor the fucking moment they attack us at pearl harbor you couldn't find an isolationist you couldn't find a pacifist they they disappeared they went underground right 99% of people rallied around the flag so why would we want to do this what do we i mean i just want to know what effect they even think this is going to have they think because of this now the iranians are going to like what, overthrow their government? Fuck no, they're going to rally behind the government, even if they hate that government. They're going to say, still, we'll take an Iranian government that we don't like over American foreign aggression that we don't like. And it's like, the counterproductivity of American foreign policy since at least 2001 is so staggering that it makes me believe that either the most incompetent people have led our government and only incompetents are allowed to the top, which seems ridiculous. That can't be true. I mean, it can't be totally true. Maybe it can. I don't know. Or B, there's an agenda amongst a proportion of the elites. And that agenda is to drum up a war, that the agenda is to fight endless war in order to control the populace. It's. It, it seems to me. I. I don't know. Is there a third scenario? You guys tell me. I, I. It's. We've been so counterproductive. that It's hard not to believe that one of those two is true.
2: Yeah, it's one of those two.
1: I don't know. It's so true. scary. <laughs> it's just like ridiculous that, you know. And then you have Pompeo out there saying, you know, oh, this is a good thing and you know, like our partners in Europe aren't being very supportive, but the partners in the region are, and, you know, they don't understand that we saved, you know, we saved lives in Europe by doing this and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, how do people like take anything that this administration says literally anymore? Like they always, they're always just promoting their own position and they're not with no explanation. Like I would be more willing to listen to, if they were giving an explanation as to why, other than the stupid platitudes of, he was a really bad guy and needed to get taken care of. Like that's the same bullshit we've heard for the last 18 years about why we need to keep doing what we're doing. And it's, I just don't, it doesn't seem like anybody, and I I know there's probably people that are working in the State Department and in the D.P. and in, you know, these different uh, levers of power that are trying to, you know, work through these scenarios, but they're the ones that aren't getting any press. Like no nobody's talking to them. Nobody's asking them like, okay, what is an actual strategy for what the fallout will be? Because all we keep hearing is this was a good thing and we need to keep like this was a good thing. But nobody's telling us why or what we do about it now.
0: And why was killing him the only option?
1: Exactly, like, exactly. I,
0: I, haven't, I haven't heard anyone explain why that was the best policy. In other words, I mean, call me crazy, but uh, we have, like, pretty good military. I heard we have these Navy SEAL guys, and uh, <laughs> apparently we probably might have been able to intercept his convoy with overwhelming force.
1: He was at him. the fucking Baghdad airport. Like, come on, we could have yeah. easily done that.
0: I think we've got some guys nearby i heard we have bases all over the middle east i don't know if that's still true but like what if we surrounded his convoy captured him publicized publicly the evidence against him specifically and iran more generally essentially uh, tried him in the court of public opinion Mm -hmm. and held him as leverage for Iran to call off the attacks, possible, right? I'm not even saying that I would have done that, but it's another option that yeah. might involve that might have at least catalyzed negotiation. Now, maybe not. Maybe they would have upped the ante on those attacks because we captured him. Maybe um, I'm not even that, that. I'm not even saying that was definitely the right scenario. But isn't it more likely to catalyze negotiation and diplomacy than than than, than assassination? I mean, just in human behavior, right? Like, if you want to talk to somebody, right, even if you don't like them, like punching them in the nose or punching their best friend in the nose isn't usually the best way to get them to think rationally, is it? I mean, just just from a psychological point of view, no?
2: I doubt doubt if we did use ground forces that he would have made it back to wherever they're camped at alive, given that, you know, it seems like lately we can't do anything but kill terrorists. We can't capture them. We can't, you know, it, it just... so yeah the the seals or delta is going to go and and peg one on the wall again but leave us in the same position we're in now
0: yeah you're, you're probably right about that because like who knows if his convoy would have gone peacefully or whether they would have chosen martyrdom but i mean it's just the whole thing and and then here's where i think we need to go with it you know because and the last thing we need is for Danny to make the bonus episode like longer than an hour, but especially <laughs> since we're only talking one topic, but I think we have to go to context and, and we could all weigh in here. But like, I don't know, like I wrote an article back in June called the view from Tehran and I just finished an article that'll be in, um, that'll be an antiwar.com tomorrow called, um, who started it. And both of those articles are about walking a mile in your adversary's shoes and understanding like their viewpoint and like sometimes when i read as a historian sometimes i like get so frustrated with how wrong america has often been that i want to like wave iranian flags just like the hippies used to wave like people's republic of vietnam flags you know um and i wouldn't Necessarily to do that in practice, but it like makes me want to like tattoo a fucking Iranian flag on my fucking bicep because I'm so sympathetic in many ways to their cause now not because I like their government. I think their human rights record is abhorrent It's like right below Saudi Arabia in shittiness um, But Saudi Arabia there are there are shitty human rights violators, right? There are there are tyrants. We like them, but I mean just a brief walk down memory lane like we overthrew their democratically elected prime minister mohammad mozafdek in 1953 because he had the audacity to nationalize iran's oil which nationalize implies it was their oil right would we allow fucking russian companies to fucking do all the fracking in fucking north dakota i don't think so we'd probably nationalize that shit too and tell them to go fuck themselves but nevertheless so we overthrow their probably first democratically elected and highly popular and mostly secular um, prime minister and put in charge a king. And the king, the Shah, obviously rules with an iron fist. He's got one of the most brutal intelligence services of the era. And this was an era of brutal intelligence services. You know, you have the stops in Eastern Europe, and in this case you have the Savak in, um, uh, in Persia, in Iran. So there's that. And then there's well, the Iranians get fed up with the Shah, and thereby, through the transitive property i took um I, I, I took uh, math at high school, so I remember that uh anyway, through the transitive property, they also blamed us, and so there's the hostage crisis and blah 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 in nineteen seventy nine but you know I mean none of the hostages were like executed. I'm not saying they should have taken the hostages, but like, let's have some like perspective and scale right like Okay, so like 52 hostages, I believe, were taken in 79, and they're held for a little over a year. None of them were murdered. I'm not saying they were treated wonderfully, but they weren't murdered. But then, like a less than a year later, Iraq, a brutal, brutal dictatorship that we thought was so brutal we had to invade it twice, um, we back it. We back them, and, and they invade Iran. Like it's an, it's an unabashed, aggressive invasion, and America supports Iraq with intelligence and satellite imagery and, and, and sales of key goods, maybe not weapons, but some of the goods needed to you know, conduct the logistics of warfare, and we give them like a billion dollars worth of aid. And half a million Iranians died in what for them was an existential existential war i mean to lose that war was to lose independence and potentially lose more than that because of the mass murderous nature of saddam and during that war because we were like protecting uh kuwaiti and other states that were allied to other arab states small arab states that were allied to iran um or to iraq you know, uh, Iran, out of desperation, was, was, was trying to sink, like, Iraqi and, and then uh, their allied oil tankers, you know, just for, for a war necessity. We started putting American flags on, like, Kuwaiti tankers. And then when Iran had dared transgress a- and attack, we sunk their entire navy in Operation Praying Mantis at the end of the Iran-Iraq war. No declaration of war. We just sunk their navy. No one ever talks about that. And then we shot down one of their airliners by mistake quotes killed 290 people and we gave a medal to the commander of that ship and then George HW Bush said that he would never apologize for America even when America murders 290 civilians by accident he wouldn't say hey sorry guys we didn't mean to do that no he refused to apologize he publicly said that all this goes on right all this goes on and this is the perspective from Tehran and then like you said in 2001 and 2003 we surround them with military bases on a level never before seen in their history. On both sides, we invade and occupy their two na- largest neighbors to the east and the west. And then, worse still, in 2002 and 2003, we start threatening them. We start saying, after we're implying that after Iraq, you're next. You know, we put them in the axis of evil. There's only three countries in that motherfucker, right? In that that triumvirate. And, like, country number one, Iraq, just got regime changed. And if you're Iran, you're like, well, the North Koreans might have nukes or almost have nukes. So they're probably not going next. I mean, the writing was on the wall. If the whole Iraq thing had went more more positively, (laughs) they were next. In fact, there was that widely, widely published quote from one of the neocon insiders in the Bush administration early in the Iraq invasion where he said, um, you know, everybody, everybody wants to go to Baghdad now, but real men want to go to Tehran. I mean, Iran reads, they can read. They're a literate, educated society. They read our newspapers. This shit is published around the world. From their point of view, we backed the enemy that invaded them in an existential war and killed more Iranians than had died in any war since the Persian Empire. And then we invaded both their neighbors and began to not so, uh, not so surreptitiously uh, threaten them. So I guess all I'm saying is it is hard, despite Iran's legitimate flaws internationally, but more so domestically, it is hard not to want to go into the streets and take an Iranian flag to the fucking peace rally. Again, I'm not quite there yet, but it's hard not to think it. Uh, am I crazy for that? And 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 do we think that the media should spend a little more time on that backstory?
1: Absolutely. Also, you forgot one piece, which is the more recent one of the fact that the UN or the US designated the IRGC as a terrorist organization. So thereby giving them access to use the AUMF, which is already a fucking flawed and stupid thing that should absolutely be taken care of, but legally has given them cover to create these strikes and to do more. So that's like, all that history together has created the situation where we're in, where the administration can continue to say everything we're doing is legal and you know this is good for us and i just I like or mike pompeo said uh you can't get away with using proxy forces and think your homeland will be safe and secure we're going to respond against the actual decision makers the people who are causing this threat from the islamic public of iran, from islamic republic of iran i'm like ah, like this is so fucked, and and there has to be people somewhere in government that are willing to stand up to this and say no more. But unfortunately, it doesn't look like we have those people.
0: Oh, you're right. And you know what's fascinating about Pompeo's doctrine? Let's call it the Pompeo Doctrine, that, um, you know, your homeland will not be safe if you use proxy forces. Well, that's a novel doctrine because if I was Iran, I would say, and I'm sure they will if they haven't already, I would say, great point. You, America, use more proxy forces in the greater Middle East than anyone at all. So I guess that means it's okay for us to conduct attacks on your homeland. So when we send somebody with a fucking bomb into your subway system, we're going to make the same argument. Or more more directly related, when we drop a bomb on you know uh mark milley while he's on a tour of the troops in afghanistan we're gonna say listen you can't get away with using proxy forces i mean u.s kurdish allies u.s ambar awakening allies you you know u.s afghan local police uh the Saudi army, these are all proxy forces. You can make an argument not an argument. They are proxies of the United States. So if, if the Pompeo doctrine holds, then, you know, the logical conclusion is that it's okay to attack the American homeland. I think it's an extremely, extremely dangerous doctrine. So much so that if it had been applied during the Cold War, when the entire war was basically fought between American proxy forces in the third world and Russian proxy forces in the third world. The Pompeo doctrine would say that America and Russia shouldn't have nuked each other. That their homeland mm-hmm. shouldn't have been safe, right? I mean Absolutely. It, it may sound like <laughs> an it may sound like it may sound like an absurd extension of, of the logic, but it's not. I mean the guy went to West Point, which means he took four semesters of mandatory history. I don't know what his major was, maybe he was a history major. The motherfucker ought to know better. I'm like, who was your teacher? Who the fuck taught you at fucking West Point? Makes me like sad for the institution. He certainly wasn't in my class. I mean, because first of all, he would have gotten an F. And second of all, if he didn't get an F, he wouldn't have fucking said something so stupid as the Pompeo Doctrine.
1: I mean, how many people do we know? Like, American history is pretty bad already, (laughs) like, as it is taught because we, you know, we only look at things from our white, European, Eurocentric um, perspective. So I, if he got that traditional education, I don't see why he wouldn't, at least. You know, he probably wasn't thinking that way.
0: Oh, yeah, no, absolutely not. All context is absent, you know. The Democrats and the Republicans live in different realities, which is already disturbing. And, and I don't think we could have the events that have been unfolding over the last 19 years i don't think they could have unfolded quite as absurdly had not the partisan divide grown so tribal had not especially in the post trump era or at least in the post fox news era had not americans begun to live in absolutely alternate realities with alternate facts right um There is still such a thing as objectivity now. Nothing is completely objective, but there is something that is approaching objectivity still exists, and and mostly you find it among scholars. Um, Scholars disagree, but there is something that we call the scholarly consensus. On most issues and sometimes the consensus is like a 99% consensus like in climate change sometimes it's like a 90% consensus in most people like historians view of things like the Mexican War and things like what caused the Civil War and then there's sometimes you know consensus is only 70% but there is still such a thing as almost truth right that's what I'll call it almost truth <laughs> and, and yet neither side even approaches it. Neither the political, like, establishment, mainstream sides approaches it. Like, you've got the Republicans. We'll we'll start with the Democrats. The Democrats are wrong about, like, 80% of this issue. The only thing they're right about is that it was stupid to do it, right? That it was stupid to assassinate this dude. They're right about that. But the other 80% of the story, context, the blame, the view from Tehran, they're wrong about all that right? They, they don't even talk about it. The Republicans are almost more refreshing because they don't even pretend to live in reality. To them, it's like, no, America's always been wonderful. Iran has always been evil. And therefore, we were doing God's work by murdering this guy. I mean, I almost appreciate them more because you could look at them and say, yeah, I mean, they need to be committed to an insane asylum. You know what I mean? Whereas when you look at the Democrats, you say, like, ah, see, these guys are fucking these – are, these are phonies. You know, these are frauds. You know what I mean? They're trying to sell us a bill of goods. The Republicans aren't really selling anything but crazy. I mean, they're selling <laughs> crazy out of the bottle. You know what I mean? Like, they really are. I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, it's insane, but at least you can identify the enemy. When it comes to Republicans, you, you know the, the Republican. I mean, I I am so like, and I'm not even like pro Democrat. I mean, you guys have seen how many articles I've written that are criticize them, and most of my attacks come from Democrats now. Most people attack me, but like, I, I mean, Republicans have gone so far off the rails and have made me so mad and have become so just demonstrably evil to the extent that evil exists that they could run Jesus Christ, they could run Jesus of Nazareth for president in 2020, and I'd vote for Joe Biden. <laughs> okay like not and i'm not saying i'm gonna vote for joe biden but like you know what i mean like if i had a vote between the two i'd be like well this guy who heals the sick seems pretty cool but he's got that r next to his name and i remember george bush you know what i mean like there's no way and, and i think that that's i guess what i'm saying is that i'm part of the problem but i almost blame them for making me part of the problem and um as much as that's a cop-out and the context that I talked about, the context that you guys talked about, turn CNN on right now. I mean, this story still dominates the news. At least it did all last night when I couldn't sleep. And uh, for my sins, I was watching CNN. But, you know...
1: Well, the fact that you're even like... That you even have to put yourself in that box, that's what pisses me off. Like, everything is an either-or thing. And as you said, there's no... There's no room for nuance, for context, for like, objectivity. It's just you know, what side of the issue are you on? Like We've boiled everything down political into those two categories. And it's a false dichotomy. And it really pisses me off because like, nobody is asking those questions outside of that box. Or if they are, they're not getting you know, the attention. They're not getting the press. That needs to be, you know, you need in order to really understand these complex geopolitical issues that come from so much history, and mm. I—it's it, hard to talk to my like my family about it, you know, and, the, and some of them have no clue about the context, and they just want to say this guy is bad and this person's bad, and we're good, you know, and mm. it's just—it's it lacks critical thinking, it lacks awareness. It lacks all those things that we should be promoting in, in you know, a democracy, if, if we need a function of democracy, we need people to think critically. And I just don't, I don't see that being really pushed in any of the mainstream narratives at all.
0: You're absolutely right about the binary. When war, when the decision to go to war and when the facts that precipitate said war which is the most extreme human behavior right the bloodiest most extreme human behavior besides destroying the planet through climate change war is the most extreme human behavior when war itself and the facts surrounding the run-up to war become so politicized that the two sides totally go against one another regardless of those facts because they have their own facts then as then a nation is inevitably and logically on the road to forever war. I mean, there used to be, and it was always a bit of a misnomer, it was always a bit of a myth, but there was some truth to it. During the Cold War there was this phrase, you guys have probably heard it, a popular phrase among historians and political scientists, where they would say, um, partisanship stops at the ocean's edge. Meaning that Republicans and Democrats would always and forever disagree about health care, But when it came to the Soviet threat or the German threat, there was some willingness to, like, have a collegial debate and work together for the best interests of the United States. Well, those days are over, Mm -hmm. over. Look at the vote on Syria, right? Not a single Democrat flipped. Look at the vote on Yemen. What, 10 Republicans flipped? You know, look at the, the every single congressman and every single senator has been forced to give a statement on their website or on the TV networks and how many Democrats have supported Trump? I think the answer is zero, at least full out. And how many Republicans have supported, you know, that Trump was, you know, we're against Trump. I mean, Rand Paul and maybe a couple others. I mean, it's Except become- it
1: the defense budget, basically.
0: <laughs> right, and then it's on the, the, the defense budget is, yeah, it's the only bipartisan thing, right? I mean, unless you're Bernie Sanders, like everyone's voting for it, but you know, this is scary scary stuff Uh, you know the the, i mean i think we we beat this up a little bit and i i have a feeling on our next episode we're gonna have to like readdress this in a shorter segment because um tell me if i'm way off base but uh let's say we record later this week or early next week it is very likely not definite, because they may be patient, but it is very likely that we're going to have to discuss uh, Iran's initial retaliation, because it may already have happened. In fact, it may already have happened, probably not, but it may have already happened by the time this episode is released, by the time our listeners are listening. So I think we're going to have to readdress this. But the last point that I want to make is, is this. It's a constitutional point. People for- seem to have forgotten about the constitutional structure surrounding war-making. Well, what Trump did with this action is he made war – well, first of all, he committed an act of war. But secondarily, but more importantly, I think, he made war inevitable, right? Now, what he did was he created a war, and then he, at best – right left congress the media and the people to pick up the pieces and decide whether to support their country now that their country's at war which puts those people in a very difficult position because to not support the war that trump just started is to seem unpatriotic and against the troops right let me give you an example of when this happened before and why the constitution as far as the Constitution says, this is not how it's supposed to work, right? There's supposed to be deliberation in the legislative body as to whether war is necessary, right? unless it's directly in self-defense, in which case the president has like 90 days you know, before Congress has to sanction it, the you know, War Powers Act and all that. But I have a problem with the War Powers Act. It doesn't get me started on that. We'll do that in another episode. But legalistically, here's something that happened in the past. Um, In 1836 – I promise I'll try, try to be brief – in 1836, Texas slaveholders who were illegal immigrants, most of them in Mexico, decided to rebel against Mexico's sovereignty over the province of Texas because Mexico had outlawed slavery and Mexican law said – and they had agreed to it when they first came – that they had to uh, convert to Catholicism. Um, that was the rules that was their sovereign nation's rules they have every right to do that right well the texans who were really just americans from the south who decided to get free land in texas or cheap land in texas they they wanted to be slaveholders because they were monsters and they wanted to stay protestant because they wanted to stay protestant and they thought that catholic mexicans were like subhuman so they had a rebellion and they broke off and formed their own republic now uh, according to international law at the time even the british said this was still part of Mexico. Mexico uh, abrogated the treaty that Santa Ana had, had been forced to sign uh, on pain of death. Okay? So he had been, he had been forced. They, so they nullified. They annulled that. And, and they continued to say that Texas was theirs. And there was even some fighting along the border. Well, Southerners and some Westerners in the United States had always wanted to annex Texas. And Texas wanted to be annexed. But for nine years, it wasn't done. Because similar to the reason that uh, Soleimani wasn't assassinated earlier, the cooler heads in Washington realized that the annexation of Texas was tantamount to war with Mexico, right? Because according to international law and according to Mexican policy, Texas was still theirs. James K. Polk gets elected as a dark horse, probably America's like, biggest dark horse candidate up to that point. No one had ever heard of him, but he became like a big populist and he ran on two uh, platforms uh, one, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the Oregon country from the British, but he meant that through negotiation, not war and and, and two I'm gonna annex Texas okay gets elected. Um, he supports the annexation of Texas Can him out to war, right then. Using his Commander-in-Chief Article II authority, he sends an army, a small army, about 5,000 guys, but our army was so small that that was a big portion of it, under Zachary Taylor, who later became a president, uh, into Texas. Okay, that was another act that was tantamount to war, but then even further, he sends them across uh, the Nueces River to the Rio Grande. Now, the entire international community agreed with mexico that the nueces river was the boundary because when texas was a province of mexico the nueces river which is just north of the rio Grande, was was the boundary so therefore when texas secedes right if even if that was legal when texas secedes the nueces would remain the boundary right but the Texan rebels were like, ah, we, really, we kind of want that land between the Oasis and the Rio Grande, and so they really wanted what became Corpus Christi, blah, 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 blah. So Polk not only annexes Texas, tantamount to war, he sends an army over the internationally recognized boundary, unilaterally says the Rio Grande is the boundary, knowing full well we now know from all the declassified documents, knowing full well that this would start a war because he wanted a war now. This is not how the Constitution was set to work. Now, we know what happened. Mexican lancers, out of pride and out of sovereignty and nationalism, attacked and killed some of our cavalrymen, which then gave Polk the catalyst he needed, the justification he needed to go to Congress and ask for a declaration of war. Now, think about the fate accompli he accomplished. Think about the quandary he put the Congress in. Because he says to them, war has already begun. Will you not support your nation? Will you not give me a declaration of war? And of course, by a large bipartisan majority, even though a lot of the Whigs were skeptical, they were fearful that it would look like they weren't supporting their country or their troops. They were fearful they would lose their seats. And so almost all of them, except for the indefatigable 15, um, led by John Quincy Adams. Except for them, everyone voted for the war. Now... The reason I tell this story is I would argue Trump has done something quite similar. The only difference is Trump won't even have the good measure and the prudence to go to Congress and ask for a declaration of war now. He won't even do that because we're so fucking far through the looking or We're so constitutionally off the rails. He won't even do that. But if he did, he'd be putting – even if he did, I bet you most – almost certainly that we would accede to an AUMF because he has created a situation where we're already at war. But we all know, all three of us, and I think most of our listeners know, that this is not how the Constitution was designed regarding war-making. Mm-hmm. But one of the flaws of the Constitution, though, is that it, it does have that loophole where it says the president is commander-in-chief of the army, which allows a cynical right, president like James K. Polk or Donald Trump to do things like this or crossing the Oasis River that make war all but inevitable. And so my last point today is, like, let's all pause and consider the constitutional ramifications for Trump's actions, how they build on Polk's actions, how they actually exaggerate and take a step further down the road per- to perdition, Polk's actions. And what this, and I'm going to leave this as a rhetorical question what this means constitutionally, legalistically, for America and its presidents going forward. And all I'll say is count me concerned about what this portends, if that makes sense.
2: We're on Twitter at Fortressana Hill and also at facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And If you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. And listen to my song. I hope you'll pay attention. I will not be de-